Guys, joining Dollar Shave Club is a no-brainer. It'll make your life so much easier. Since I joined, I no longer have to go to the store to buy my razors or choose between price and quality to get an amazing shave. Dollar Shave Club is just the best. DollarShaveClub.com delivers high-quality razors right to my home for less than what I used to pay. There's no reason to deal with the hassle of going to the store to buy expensive razors when you join the club. I use their executive razor. I get an amazing shave and never have to set foot in a store to buy razors ever again. Over 3 million members like me love Dollar Shave Club. The quality, value and convenience of DSC can't be beat. Right now, you can get your first month of the club for as little as $5. After that, it's just a few bucks a month. There's no reason not to join. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash 10 questions. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash 10 questions. Let's do the show. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. 10 questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Lift off. We have lift off. Welcome back to 10 Questions. Now, loyal listeners are used to me being all about entertainment and media and show business. Well, this week, I've gone political. My guest is former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Warning, when I have a politician on this show, and I hope to speak to a few more, I doubt I'll be combative in any way. There are enough shows that do that. These 10 questions are designed to make the listener get to know the subject a little better, what makes them happy, what makes them miserable, their loves and their loathes. During the interview, you'll occasionally hear me laugh ruefully at Mr Rudd's experiences of growing up in country Queensland. That's because I was born in country Queensland as well, albeit a generation later. But I know what the former PM is talking about when it comes to the problems of race and the general backwardness of the time. For those of you who live outside Australia, Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister of Australia from 2007 to 2010 and then briefly again in 2013. The circumstances of his resignation in 2010 and re-emergence in 2013 is a pretty dramatic story and familiar to every Australian and every Australian has an opinion on it. So if you like Shakespearean style histories, then I invite you to do some research. Kevin Rudd's first memoir, Not for the Faint-Hearted, a personal reflection on life, politics and purpose, is out now thanks to Pan McMillan. I chatted with Mr Rudd via Skype from Oxford University, where he just addressed some students, and as usual, my first question was, when were you most happy? Uh, Probably in Northern Italy, uh, probably on the banks of, or on the shores of uh, Lake Como. Oh, wow. uh, Which is... A stunningly beautiful stretch of water uh, with a medieval town called Bellagio on the corner of the lake. And that's a place where Pliny the Younger had his residence uh, while he was an official in Rome. So combination of history, combination of scenery, combination of just sheer physical beauty. And what year was that? Well, many years, because Therese and I and uh, the family have been back there a number of times. But I'd say the first time was probably about uh, 20 years ago. And does November 2007 hold a special place in your heart? Uh, Yeah. Um, uh, Not as beautiful as Lake Como. No. But... uh, but, uh, 
uh, November 2007, where, frankly, it was a nail-biter. We didn't know whether we were going to win the election or not. Howard had been in for, God, 12 years. And therefore, uh, having confidence that we could actually get across the line, that was a tough business. So being there that night in Brisbane and watching the seats roll in, uh, there's just a touch of unreality when you finally cross over the line and know that you've just been elected Prime Minister. So it was, I won't say the happiest time, it was the most overwhelming time. Does that make sense? It, definitely. Well, it was a happy time for a lot of people, though. That's true. I mean, I sensed that when I went home and sort of there are literally hundreds of people just outside our house. Uh it's a funny old thing, though. You win an election, you just get overwhelmed with a sense of responsibility of what you do next. Of course. So, so, but, yeah, good time. Question two. Who would you like to apologise to and why? Uh, probably uh, Therese for having uh, dragged her so mercilessly through my public political career for so long, <laughs> uh, where uh, she was always willing to sign up to the cause, but um, I always sensed that... Uh, she was uh, taking it uh, tough on the way through. Mm. And and then, of course, they start throwing stuff at her as well. So, yes, that would be my answer. Therese, my wife of 37 years, and uh, or 36 years, I should say. And, um, and, uh, uh, and just for inflicting public political life on her. How did she handle it? Pretty well, actually. I think it only got on top of her once, or maybe twice. Once was when Howard decided to rip into her and her ownership of a company uh, when I was leader of the opposition, which was all pretty nasty, uh, and uh, mount a series of charges against her, each of whom which were disproven. But, you know, Howard was a pretty desperate political beast in those days. Mm. And then secondly, um, when the uh, coup happened in June of 2010, she found that really hard because she knew how much I'd worked, how hard I'd worked, how hard she'd worked. But um, but there are a whole lot of people working less hard who are just out there uh, planning for their moment in the sun. Do, do you find in reflection that in reflection on life in, in public um, that there is a certain level of, of unappreciation, um, especially when you see things like the NBN being, being really kind of compromised after you left? I think uh, what happens once you leave public life is that part of you accepts philosophically that you've been defeated. And that happened in 2013 uh, when uh, Abbott won the 2013 election uh, with the assistance of his coalition partners, uh, the Murdoch Party. But then when you've got key parts of an agenda which you've run out there, and that would have been, for us, uh, that would have included the National Broadband Network and to watch these guys then dismember it um, and to change its uh, entire um, uh, shape from being fibre optic to the premises to fibre optic to the node in order to appease uh, their news-limited masters, that really grates, really grates big time. Mm. Australian people are screwed as a result. The economy is screwed as a result. The only one who wasn't screwed was Rupert. Mm. And, and they seem to only just be realising this now, you know, on, on mass. Well, uh, I um, thought that these things were self-evident to the Australian public, but mm. I've decided in the last 12 months or so it's less than self-evident. So that's why I've gone completely on the offensive on it. 
because um, this is a big investment for the nation, being fibre optic to your home, to your workplace, to your small business, to your school, to your factory, uh, to your hospital, to your medical centre. It's very transformative. A whole bunch of new digital businesses um, potentially springing up. Uh, and then they just gut it because it uh, becomes, uh, a, uh, in Murdoch's eyes, a market competitor against his Fox Entertainment Network in Australia and its cable mm. monopoly because it provides um, the NBN fibre optic to the premises at least was a method of delivering uh, other entertainment platforms like Netflix, which mm. would have become direct commercial competitors of uh, Murdoch's uh, Fox Entertainment um, uh, empire in Australia, which was delivering a cool $1 billion profit a year. Mm. Question three, what is your greatest regret? I think in many respects it was uh, to just be too trusting um, of some of my colleagues. It never crossed my mind that um, they would actually um, undertake a political coup in the way in which they did because I assumed that they were just loyal human beings. Um, as someone asked me the other day, and uh, what was it like in that period? And I said, well, uh, in the three and a half years by that stage that I'd been leader of the party, um, I'd been ahead in every single opinion poll, uh, with the exception of one, and uh, where I'd dipped down to 49%. And that's when they acted. I mean, for God's sake, um, uh, Abbott lost 30 in a row. Turnbull's lost 23 in a row. Um, you know, this yeah. is... So I think, uh, as I look back on it, I think I was naive in trusting folks like uh, Gillard and trusting folks like Swan, uh, given that um, I thought I had a much deeper relationship with them. But they saw their main political chance and they went for it with both hands. Uh, someone that you obviously didn't have much of a kinship with was Mark Latham. Are you surprised by the direction that he's taken his career? Well, I've always regarded uh, Latham as a bit of a rudderless ship in the sense that, uh, Mark, when you stand back and look at it all, is just a controversialist. Yeah, yeah. He just likes being in the news. <laughs> so whatever it takes to be in the news, Mark will do that. Uh, I mean, for a guy who was leader of the Labor Party with all this enthusiasm from the left intelligentsia around the country, who publicly advocated the reintroduction of corporal punishment to beat the crap out of kids, I mean, Kate, where does that come from? Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. I just don't understand that. So, you know, his eventual drift to the far right of Australian politics uh, that is, you know, his um, relationship with Trump, his relationship with Hanson. I mean, uh, I think it's essentially just um, he's on the drip in terms of wanting to be the object of media attention and however extreme that needs to make him, he'll become that extreme. It's a bit like what Swan said to me years ago, and I should have twigged way back then when he described politics as a game. Uh, then he said it's, you know, obviously it's the best game of all, but it's still a game. I mean, I had this naive view that you went into the business to try and change things, like delivering National Broadband Network to punters in rural Tasmania who would otherwise see their local economies just go go down the gurgle. Yeah. Uh, but there's a whole species in politics, both in the Labor Party and the Liberals, who just see it as sport. Yeah. Um, and uh, frankly, it revolts me. Question four, what you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? 
I think um, for me it's always a combination of action and reflection. So the action part is I'm working with a, as president of a think tank in New York, doing a lot of um, semi-second track diplomacy between the Americans and the Chinese. Because that's a big question, how these two countries actually carve out their future together or against each other. Uh, that's on the action side. On the reflection side, um, I've just um, written my first book. Uh, I may mm. write more, um, and not just about you know my life, but on the big questions of how do we deal with rising China in the future, how do we deal with um, the unresolved questions of climate change, and what about um, the future of global economic governance and the possible return of another financial crisis? And I suppose the other one, which is kind of the um, the uh, the uh, the cancerous problems now besetting the health of our sort of overall democracies. Mm. So I think there's a there's a place for what I describe as some sharp uh, but reflective advocacy. So it's it's doing stuff, uh, but it's also being reflective about it. That I think together constitutes the fulfilled life. Did you enjoy writing the book? Yeah, most of the time. I mean, there are days uh, that come when you uh, feel as if you're uh, chained to a desk. Yeah. Uh, when you've um, got to make sure that you've got the figures for the non farm deflator between <laughs> 1982 and 84 exactly down pat, or whether you've cubed it to the square root of nothing and added a bucket of asparagus <laughs> instead. Um, you know, it's that sort of shit which can you know, send you a little bit spare. But on the purely creative side and uh, trying to frame uh, an argument, but most importantly in writing a book, tell a story. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, that, that part of it was enjoyable. Question five is, who is the person who most influenced, question five is, who is the person who most influenced you and how? I think probably my mum. You know, my father died in an accident when I was 11, so I don't really remember him much. Uh, but my mum more or less single-handedly brought me up. So, uh, and in times where, you know, we were in sort of reasonable struggle street, if you like. Mm. So I have a great deal of respect for single women doing that sort of thing back in 70s Australia, if you know what I mean. Totally. And there wasn't much social security around, and certainly in our part of the People's Republic of Queensland, there was no such thing as social housing. Um, unless you call the gum tree that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, uh, how did she influence me? I think um, because she was a self-educated woman who'd never gone much behind past uh, primary school, but prided herself in reading and being able to write, and she used to write columns for the local newspaper, etc. cetera. Oh. Uh, she always would throw books at me, and, uh, and she was determined that I'd go to university even if she had to spend a life saving for it. And so I think that was part of it. I think the other part of it is my mother didn't have a single pre bone of prejudice in her body. And so, for example, with the indigenous kids who lived in our local town, she insisted from an early age that my brother and I went and played with these indigenous kids alternative Saturdays, um, either right. at their place out on our farm. Now think about that in 60s rural Australia. Yeah. 60s rural Queensland. Huh. <laughs> so uh, I think she was not only a natural caring mother, 
but she wanted her kids to be educated. Uh, she wanted me to have educational opportunity. Uh, but she was also a person of quite uh, deep and unusual values. Yeah. Growing uh, up as a daughter of the CWA and the Country Party. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Wow, totally. Um, what was the newspaper that she wrote for? Uh, the Nambour Chronicle. came out every Tuesday and I think every Thursday. And hey. she used to write the... Um, the community roundup uh, for your Monday and districts. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> I, I I made a TV show a few years ago, and um, and we set an episode. It was a road trip to Nambour, and um, <laughs> and I was amazed how much it had changed from my childhood. It's such a such a lovely city now, a lovely little town, and and that area is just beautiful. It's actually nestled quite nicely at the foothills of the. Mapleton Range. Mm. My mother was born up actually up on the Mapleton Range. Her parents had a farm there, uh, somewhere between uh, Mapleton and Dulong, which then looks down onto Nambour, then across to uh, the coast. So it really is quite a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, question six: When was the last time you cried, and why? Hmm. I'm not good at dentists. <laughs> I may have wanted to cry, but being a person of manly pursuits from rural Queensland, uh, it's not encouraged. No. I think when the last cry was probably, yeah, probably um, a few years ago with the death of uh, friends, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um what is your current state of mind? Uh, Queensland. <laughs> In its entirety? It's a state. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. Look, by instinct, I'm an optimist. So, um, you know, I mean, most people uh, have some sense of the fact that um, political life's been a bit rough on the way through, but then again, it is for most people. Mm. Um, and particularly when you've had, firstly, the assassination squad through, then the demolition derby, uh, yeah. working on your reputation afterwards. So um, so you can either sort of uh, crumple uh, up into a heap um, um, and then just become bitter and twisted, uh, and there are quite a lot of people like that in political life and post-political life, or um, you can be essentially positive and optimistic and get on and do other other stuff. And I think, therefore, to answer your question, um, it's, um, it's optimistic and, um, and I, uh, am f I feel deeply fulfilled when I'm around uh, with uh, Therese, the kids and the grandkids. And that's a natural thing. So, But optimistic about what I can do in life, but I'm optimistic about the contribution I can make tonight, for example, I gave an hour and a half talk in Chinese to the Oxford Student Chinese Students Association, about a hundred of them, um, about um, you know uh, how does how do the how does China and the West get on in the future? Yeah, um, I think that's useful because they'll all become Oxford graduates and end up being senior poobars back in China doing something or other. So um, I spoke to the Australian and New Zealand Students Association here in Oxford the night before on. Um, not allowing themselves to succumb to tall poppy syndrome when they get back home, go out and become excellent unapologetically so for what they do. Yeah, uh, that's great. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's 
there's a way in which you can make um, a positive contribution. And if you've got an optimistic view of the continued possibility of progressive politics making the world better for people and preserving the planet more effectively, uh, then it keeps you going. Otherwise, you just degenerate into a, you know, uh, a cynical lump, which is sort of a cocktail of, um, you know, um, Abbott, Turnbull and Swan. Mm. <laughs> what advice would you have for people who are leaving politics who have been through the tumble dryer? How, how would you actually uh, suggest they move on and uh, not have, you know, post-traumatic stress? Uh, Rinso and Omo, if you're in the um, <laughs> if you're in the tumble dryer. I mean, I think it always worked for me. Yes. I think um, look, it depends what possibilities exist. But for me, there's only really one option, which is get the bloody hell out of the country. I think <laughs> one of the reasons why uh, Abbott is just sort of quietly gone mad is because he's, you know, he's there in the middle of it still. Mm. When I look at people like Swan, who should have left the parliament you know, a long time ago. Um, they just continue to be bitter and twisted in their own narrow circle. I think, therefore, if you've been in a position of senior political leadership in Australia, it's good just to get out of the place and do something internationally, whatever that happens to be. Secondly, if you are within the country, the last thing you should do is become a political lobbyist because that's just degrading. Mm. Um although a number of folks do that. And then I think um, the last piece of advice I would have is uh, because you know, political life is um, uh, can be rich and rewarding, uh, although none of it financially so, it's worthwhile uh, having a moment of catharsis to write about uh, what you've learnt through the political process. Mm. And you can do that as a local MP. You can you know, produce a monograph, you can write a journal article, or you can write a book. Um, and I think that is part of um, dealing with uh, where you've been and what you've done. Um, and then you uh, move on to the next stage. Yeah, good advice. Uh, question eight, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Uh, given that what a near-run thing it was and how bloody complex it was, and it's like playing multidimensional chess 24 hours a day for about a year, I mean, navigating the country through the global financial crisis without allowing the country to fall into recession and mass unemployment is the thing I'm most proud of. Because mm. it required a series of highly calibrated decisions where you had visibility to some extent, but beyond that you were frankly um, just having to be gutsy about following instinct about what was necessary, and we got there. Yeah. I always said during the global financial crisis, I'm not out there offering the country hope in any Pollyanna-ish sort of way. I'm offering you hope on the basis of there being a rational basis for hope coming from the things we've done. Mm. level of stimulus we put into the economy, the guarantees we gave to people's bank deposits, the guarantees we gave for interbank lending, um, those sorts of measures and how we staggered our stimulus strategy over a couple of years. Uh, once you've done those things, then you can point to them and say, together there's just going to be enough additional demand in the economy from these measures. 
uh, to prevent us from sliding down the gurgle, which every other major economy did. Mm. And many of them haven't yet fully emerged from it. Whereas we in Australia have now had 26 years of consecutive economic growth. So because that affects people, their lives, their livelihoods, and the fact that we avoided um, creating a generation of unemployed people, which is what usually happens in, happens in major recessions, uh, I think the human impact, not just the technical economic impact, uh, makes me proud of what um, uh, I did because these ultimately ended up you know, to a large extent, is discretionary decisions on behalf of the Prime Minister. Well, we're very grateful. I, I did enjoy that. Was it George Megalaganis? Was that how to pronounce his name? The, the, the documentary that was done on ABC about it? Did you... I call him George Megalomaniac. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it was It kind of, I mean, for someone who's, you know, an amateur observer of politics, I found it quite illuminating just how close we all came to... I guess, financial disaster. Known in the technical economic literature as a seriously buttocks-clenching moment. <laughs> question nine. Probably my favourite question. It can relate to politics. It can relate to life. Who would you want on your side in a battle and why? My wife, Therese. Um, why? Because she's wise. Uh, she's gutsy. Uh, she's resilient. Um uh, and um, she's uh, also principled. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd always want to have Therese in my corner. Is there anyone from your cabinet you'd, you'd take with you? I think in terms of the cabinet at the time, yeah, it would be um, uh, Albo. Yep. Um, I mean, Albo and I, at one level, are just completely chalk and cheese. Um you know, he's a inner Sydney kind of um, uh, urban lefty, and I'm this kind of, you know, church attending kind of um, bloke from the Queensland country. So, mm. but we became genuine soulmates. But there is core reason for that. With Albo, what you see is what you get. And secondly, um, he has a core set of labour beliefs based on his experience of life, which is where I get my own labour beliefs from. Uh, I mean, I I knew what justice and social justice were uh, without having read a book because I could see it unfold in my own life and mm. our own local community. And Albo is also a fantastic um, street fighter and a fantastic uh, parliamentary performer, uh, an all-round decent bloke. So... Yeah, I think if there was a trifecta of Therese, Alba and myself, could conquer the world. Yeah, fantastic. And the final question, what would you like your last words to be? My God, probably those two. <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> it's a good one. Well, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. Ten questions with Adam Joir. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. 